I'm pleased to, to preach chapter 10. Let's read through verses 4 through the end of the chapter, and then we will pray. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground as like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens the heart, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some, some winged creature tell the matter. Let's pray. God, I just think immediately of verse 4 that we just read, how calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And if I'm honest, and I think if uh, my friends here are honest, calm is not something that we feel a lot of right now. So we need you desperately, more than we even know. I know this is true of me. So, Father, as we try to dig in here and um, make some sense of what we have just read, let it not be us that makes the sense of it, but the Spirit in us that enlightens, gives us life, teaches us how to walk in wisdom better. For your glory in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at Solomon's continued encouragement to walk in wisdom, to pursue wisdom rather than foolishness. So he used an illustration, a short story of the man in the city, um, and he talked about how there is redeeming value to wisdom. Not just for the individual that possesses it, but for everyone around them. We talked about how uh, the indiscretions of one person can affect their family and ruin a reputation and all of those things. This is what Solomon is helping us understand, that true wisdom is actually worth not being remembered. Remember that story from last week? The wise but poor man saved the city, and yet nobody remembered him. And we looked at the story from Second Samuel about the, the wise woman, who probably most of us had never even heard of before, their wisdom saved their people, but they weren't remembered. 
So the question that we that, that kind of begs in our own life is, are we willing to pursue wisdom and display wisdom even if it doesn't gain us a high reputation? Even if we are forgotten? It's worth it. It's worth being forgotten to pursue wisdom. The truth is, though, we live in a world that is seemingly ever increasingly hostile towards Christians. They are not going to praise godly wisdom in the streets. They oftentimes despise it because godly wisdom reveals the the tendencies and the deficiencies of our unregenerate hearts. And so why would we praise something that convicts us to our core? It won't happen unless the Spirit of God affects us to let it happen, to allow, to cause it to happen. So godly wisdom points to the inevitable end of death, of life and death without Christ, and it warms, warns against it. Wisdom warns against it, but the world points to the same end and praises it as tolerance and acceptance. So, we, according to Galatians chapter 5, no matter what the world says, no matter what spin they put on truth, your truth, their truth, personal truth, no matter what spin is put on it, Christians cannot participate in those things. Because those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires and its passions. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 24. We've crucified the flesh, and so we cannot pursue those same things. Instead, Paul's recommendation there in Galatians 5 is to walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, walk in truth, walk in wisdom. Is that the path you've been choosing? I can't answer that question for you. Is that the path? Is wisdom the path that you've been choosing? Or do you take the easy road that leads to folly and foolishness? We've got a society that chooses the easy path instead of the right path. And error will be found in every corner from the top to the bottom. And that's what Solomon is getting at in verse 4 and following when he talks about Anger from a ruler and evil that he's seen coming from a ruler. This is the idea. When we have a society that pursues ungodliness and ridicules godliness, we're going to see this played out from the top to the bottom. Every time. And so all of chapter 10 is summing it up, is talking about foolishness. It's, it's, it's foolishness. Some is obvious and some maybe is not quite so much. Chapter 10 starts by telling us the effect that it has on individuals, as we've already said, but it also applies to nations, to people groups. Wisdom, when wisdom is not valued, structures of authority in every area are affected. Think about that. When wisdom is not valued, structures of authority in every area are affected. Rulers who are trusted to lead should put the needs of the people that they're leading above their own. This is what makes a good leader. But Solomon paints a different and all too accurate picture of what foolish leadership looks like. Look at verse 4. It speaks of a ruler who becomes angry, and whether that anger is just or, or unjust, unjust, we're not told. But Solomon's solution to 
that is not what we might expect. He does not encourage the reader, us, people who read this originally, he does not encourage us to start an uprising. He does not encourage us to start a rebellion. He even does not encourage us to get a group together to vote them out. He he talks of calmness. He says, stick around in calmness because that will disarm anger. It sounds an awful lot like he says what he says in Proverbs 15, verse 1. You guys can finish this. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So is this teaching undying, un, undying devotion to an obviously evil ruler? No. No, obviously not. Because the ruler, whoever it might be, is not God. And they are held to higher standards due to their position of authority. So Solomon here is emphasizing a respect for the office that a ruler holds. Not, not undying devotion to a person because all people are prone to evil. Solomon has already covered this in Ecclesiastes. There's not a righteous person on earth. There's not one who does right. Solomon is saying that Devotion to an office is what God desires. And when we, we'll talk about this a little bit more in Romans chapter 13. But think about the book of Esther for a moment. Esther was ripped away from her people, put in a situation that she didn't have really any control over. And for most of us, anger would rise up and we would try to escape, we would try to get away, and we would try to uh, overthrow the ruler. But this isn't the path that Esther took. And if you're familiar with the book, you understand this. Both Esther and Mordecai had every reason to rebel and to rage against the authority of the one over them, Haman. But what did they do instead? They waited patiently for God's timing. And in the end, they were avenged. God's will was done. This, I think, also is what I said, consistent with Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 13. A big part of that chapter is referring to submission to authority, rulers and authority. Verse 1 of Romans 13, we submit to early earthly authorities because there is no authority given except from God. Again, this doesn't mean that we blindly follow everything that our rulers tell us, but it does mean that we should think twice before rising up against an authority that God has established. Now, verse 5, moving along to that, is kind of interesting to me. Solomon says that he observed something, an apparent evil that comes from a ruler. And then he shares an observation, and then he gives an example. And the observation is in verse 6. He says that foolish people sit in high places of authority, while rich people, and rich is kind of synonymous with uh, noble or wise, so he, he observes that rich people sit in lowly places while foolish people sit in high places. Now, this is confusing, not just to us, but to Solomon. He observes this as an error, right? Even in his mind, especially in his mind, authority was equated with wisdom. 
right? So wise people were put in places of authority. Foolish people were not. They were in the lowly places. So this is backwards. Something is very wrong with this picture in his mind. Something's just not right. It doesn't add up, and he refers to it as an evil or as something that's wrong. It's, it's not hard, brothers and sisters, to look around and observe that there are things wrong right now. It's like Solomon is observing it. There are things that are wrong. Then he, so that's his observation. <clears throat> and then in verse 7, he gives an example of what's wrong. He says that slaves ride on horses while princes walk on the ground. This is another situation that confuses Solomon. He says it's, it's out of order. Something is not right. Princes should be the ones riding the horses. <clears throat> horses were not especially popular in that time. Um, popular or easy to get, or they were expensive, they were hard to have. Uh, so princes being on horses made sense, but for them to walk on the ground while their s- servants are riding the horse, that's curious. There's something not right with that. And I bet in Solomon's mind, he's looking at that situation, or at least that example of it, <clears throat> and he's saying, this isn't right. Look at how far this prince has fallen. He's no longer riding his horse in authority. Now he is lowly. He is underneath his servant. Those in authority are supposed to ride, while those under authority are supposed to walk. But that's not always the reality of life under the sun here, is it? It's not. So Solomon uses this as an example of how the world is turned upside down. The world is not as it should be. Weeks ago, I preached from this book and we talked about how we live in a broken world. Things are just not as they should be. And this is another example. Verses 8 through 10 go on to show this foolishness in action, but also the unexpectedness of life in a world that's upside down, that doesn't work right. Look at what he says. He says, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So four things that he points out that are kind of pretty common happenings in the world, but they have an unexpected consequence to Solomon. And these situations could even showcase the mischievous workings of a fool. Think about this with me. When you set a trap for someone else, digging the pit, that's... That's what that means. He's digging a trap. Someone is digging a pit for a trap. When you dig a a pit or you set a trap for someone, you can easily fall into it yourself. And just going back to the Esther reference, what happened to Haman? He designed gallows and then was hanged on his very own gallows. He fell into his own pit. Next, he says, when you tear down a wall or when you move stones... You might get bitten by a serpent or you might get injured by rocks falling on you. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, in Solomon's day, they didn't have aerial views with digital property boundaries. And so they would set up piles of stones or rock walls to set boundary markers for people's, for kingdoms and for people's property and that sort of thing. So the idea here is that a mischievous person is going to try to expand, wrongly expand their own territory. They may be hurt in the process. Similarly, when you attempt to use resources from your neighbor's land, like cutting down their trees, you may end up getting hurt as a result. So simply put, 
the danger for rulers is to unjustly game from those who are in, who they are in authority over. And the danger for all of us is the same thing, attempting to gain from someone else unjustly. But what do both of these things lead to? All of what we just talked about, the, the, the simple things that weren't a big deal, you know, putting your hand on a wall, removing stones, chopping wood. It's not, they're not evil in and of themselves, but what can they easily lead to? Disaster. Um, some of you I know have been injured in doing some of these very things. Cutting wood, moving rocks. It happens. It can end in disaster. No one plans to fall in a pit. When you're out cutting wood, you don't plan to cut your leg with a chainsaw. But it happens sometimes. You don't plan to drop a rock on your foot when you're moving stones, but it can happen. It's one of these unexpected realities of life. And when you don't take adequate precautions, uh, you can injure yourself and possibly destroy yourself by your own foolishness. This is part of the reality of a world that is not as it should be. There's unexpected results. Things just don't work how we expect them to. And verse 10 refers to something that all of you who know who, or who burn wood for heat totally understand. You get verse 10 because you have spent a bunch of time splitting wood. Whether it's by hand or whether it's with a splitter, it's still a lot of work. And Solomon says something else you know all too well. If you use a dull axe to split the wood, what happens? You can probably get the job done, but you're more prone to danger from things kicking off and and not working right, and you're going to expend a lot more energy using a dull axe than a properly sharpened axe. So this is not rocket science. Okay, Solomon is very down to earth here. This is common sense, but he also kind of lumps this idea of a dull axe into his evidence pile of how this world is not as it should be. Foolishness, people that don't, they just keep hacking away without stopping to evaluate the sharpness of their axe. This stuff runs rampant. We are not as wise as we think. What is obvious to the wise, like sharpening an axe, is not obvious to the foolish. You're going to hear me use that a variation of that phrase several times this morning. So let me say this one again. What is obvious to the wise, like sharpening a dull axe, is not obvious to the foolish. Wisdom would tell you to stop wasting time and energy by swinging a dull axe and spend a little time sharpening it. Taking this additional step will greatly help you succeed in your wood splitting abilities, and yet a fool wouldn't even take the time. They just keep swinging away. These are ways in which foolishness is seen in action. But verses 11 through 14 show foolishness in how we speak. So we go from what we do to how we speak. Look at these verses with me. I'm going to read them from the King James Version because I, I, like, the, I like how that sits a little bit more. Verses 11 through 13. Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment and a babbler is no better. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. 
I think these verses are all written with a serpent in mind. It starts like that, but I think they're all written with a serpent in mind. Look at verse 11. It talks about the serpent's bite. In verse 12, it talks about a fool swallowing himself up. That's how snakes eat. And in verse 13, we're talking about mischievous or evil madness. This echoes James 3, or really James 3 echoes this. If you want to flip there, you can, but let me just point out chapter 3 of James, verse 8. It's not a coincidence that this is how James describes the tongue. He says, it is a restless evil full of a deadly poison. Your words are powerful. When a fool lets his tongue control him, the results are like dealing with a venomous snake. His words hurt others like a snake bite. His words plunge him into darkness like how a snake consumes his prey. His words lead him from foolishness to ruin like the venom from a snake. First just causes pain, but eventually can cause death. Are you using your words for good or for evil? Your words can speak life or they can bring death. Look at verse 14. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? This verse reminds us that a fool thinks he knows a lot about everything. But in reality, he knows very little. A commenter, John Gill, says, No man can tell future things or what will come to pass. Nor can any man inform another of future events. And yet a fool boasts and brags of what he shall do and what he shall have as if he was master of the future and knew for certain what would come to pass, which even the wisest men do not. A fool thinks all of his words, his abundance of words makes him wise, but a wise man quietly holds his words back. This is again, not something we, de- we see displayed much in our world today. We are bombarded from the moment we wake up and look at that smartphone with words from people who want you to hear them and want you to listen. Some of those words are good. Some of those words are right. But many of them are just the person screaming the loudest from the lo- highest platform they can. A fool likes the sound of their own voice. What is obvious to the wise, like controlling your tongue, is not obvious to the foolish. What is obvious to the wise, like controlling your tongue, is not obvious to the foolish. The labor or toil of the fool in verse 15 wears him out. It wearies himself and every one of them, the King James Version says. It says it wearies him and every one of them. You guys know this kind of a person. Please don't say their name. Don't raise your hand. I just, I know it about you. You know this kind of a person, the kind of a person that talks a lot and they talk a big game and spending time with them wears you out. There are people like this. We probably all know one. Proverbs ten nineteen in the New American Standard says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. If that was the only criteria for wisdom, how wise would you be? Don't answer that out loud. 
this person who just loves hearing the sound of their own voice, they are so unaware of their own foolishness that they can't see what's right in front of them, like how to get back to the city. Something so obvious, something so easy, and they can't even see it. Even though the road is wide and is well-traveled and there are probably other people going, he is deluded by his own perceived wisdom. He thinks he knows better. And in a note of sarcasm, This says that a person may be so involved in arguing that he misses what the ordinary person is concerned about, finding their way home. What is obvious to the wise, like how to get back to the city, is not obvious to the fool. Verses 16 through 20 pick up on the idea that foolishness affects the entire nation. So we come back to that now. And in verse 16, a ruler is described as a child. Okay, this is less about age and more about maturity. It says that princes feast in the morning. What's the problem with that? Um, think teenager in the summertime. Okay, and teenagers, this is not a, a dig at you. I was one. I remember doing this. But think teenager in the summertime for a moment. Teenagers in the summertime often stay up later than they should into the early morning, and they just eat whatever they want. Mom and dad get up in the morning and all the ding-dongs are gone. And every bit of Dorito crumbs has been eaten up. So this is talking about leaders who do not care about their responsibilities. They spend their time goofing off, eating food at all hours of the night, staying up till all hours of the morning. And this is not what good leadership looks like. But this is how it's equated in Solomon's writings. Princes feast in the morning. This is not a good idea. This is not the best. This is not wisdom. Verse 17 contrasts all of that by saying that a country is blessed or happy to have leaders who care, not only about the position that they hold, but also about the people that they have responsibility for. And it says that instead of feasting in the morning, they feast at the proper time of day. So so feasting, that idea of celebrating and enjoying life, that's not wrong in and of itself. It's just in the proper time. Remember in chapter 3, we've already said, Solomon has already said there's a time for everything. So they feast at the proper time in order that they can be prepared well to rule. Strength to do what they're supposed to do. They don't feast irresponsibly with the intent of getting drunk and thereby being unfit for leadership. Solomon, in verse 18 now, he uses this idea of a house caving in to illustrate what happens when leaders are neglectful. When those in authority do not wrap their minds around wisdom, their houses fall apart. Diligence and hard work, they'll keep things going, but laziness erodes a solid structure. How many of you guys own your own home? You can raise your hand. This is not a trick question. How many of you have ever had foundation issues in your home? I sure know some of you have, okay? Those are big deals, right? You want to get on those early before it's too late, before it costs a ton of money to do a ton of work because the foundation is important. We keep an eye on those things, but leaders who are out partying until all hours of the morning or in essence who are not or who are being neglectful of their duties, they don't pay attention enough to the structure. And it begins to erode. It begins to cave in. Verse 19 carries on this attitude of a lazy and neglectful king 
who treats food, drink, and money as an escape from the realities of life. So Solomon is writing this almost from the perspective of one of these evil kings talking about overeating and getting drunk and materialism, about how money fixes everything. Isn't this kind of the prescription for escaping reality in 2020 though? Through food or through getting drunk or through material things? We don't want to think about the future. We don't want to think about how we should act. We just want to be happy in the moment. And so we surround ourselves and we use our money to buy all kinds of things that we think will make us happy, but in the end just contribute to our downward slide. Our house is caving in and we would rather add a new coat of paint than fix the roof. There's nothing new under the sun though. What is obvious to the wise, like the proper way to lead, is not obvious to the foolish. Verse 20, the last verse of this chapter, takes our minds all the way back to verse 4 where we started this morning in helping us understand more fully that God is the one who lifts leaders up, takes leaders down. And if God is sovereign, even over this, then in, then in our minds we should not plot or hope for evil to come upon those in authority over us. This is maybe one of the biggest challenges of how we live in the culture that we live right now, is disagreeing with someone without wishing harm on them. But who should be leading the way in this? Should it not be Christians? Should it not be those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ? God has every reason to not love us, and yet He looks past it and sends His Son to die in our place. Should we not then be able to look past this and other people and still care and still show love. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything I would encourage you with this morning in, in all of this, it's, it's that. Be good about being able to disagree with someone without treating them unchristianly. It's possible to do both, to treat them well and disagree. Now, at the end of this verse, it's sort of confusing. It's, it has this idea about a little birdie told me so. You guys know what that... Kids, do you understand what that means? Emery, have you ever heard us say that? A, a little birdie told me so. Yeah? You guys understand what that means? It means that somehow or some way, I got the information. I heard what you said. Like a little bird heard it. Or maybe a fly on the wall is another kind of expression that we use with all of that. We may think that we've confided in someone trustworthy regarding a dislike for somebody else, but things have a way of leaking out. We have, our words have a way of getting out. Again, we don't deify our leaders and think that they are God and that we can never say anything bad about them because they're just as prone to sin as we are. But as long as, as long as they do not require something that God forbids, we're instructed to submit to them willingly as extensions of God's own authority. Romans 13. Ecclesiastes 10. What is obvious to the wise, like the proper way to submit, is not obvious to the foolish. I want to finish this morning by going back to verse 10. There's something here that I just want to apply for us together. I think this contains Solomon's secret 
to success, which is, of course, wisdom. But he, he kind of lays it out differently. If you are a believer, I'm going to put you in the place of an axe this morning. Some of you are getting dull. When, when we go through life and we hit things, that's what, that's what gets us dull. Or you think about an axe, when it hits a rock or when it hits uh, dirt over and over, this repetitive motion, it gets dull. It's nothing bad. Or, it's nothing wrong about the axe. Out of constant use, it gets dull. And, and guys, some of us are getting dull. It happens. If you're being used, it's going to happen. You're going to run in. You're going to get nicked at work. You're going to get chipped by family members. And you're going to get dull. Because you're running into stuff every day like that. But you know what most of us do in that situation? We just keep swinging. We're so focused on just getting the job done that we don't stop to see if maybe there's a better way. But what would wisdom say to us? Look at verse 10. What would wisdom say to us? The last line, but wisdom helps one succeed. Now let me be clear. The Lord is not running low on strength. He can swing us as dull axes all day long and get the job done if he wants. But I think wisdom sells us that there's a better way here. At the same time, he's not lacking in strength. He's also not lacking in wisdom either. And wisdom would say, sharpen the axe. Do you know what happens when you sharpen a blade of something? I was sharpening my lawnmower blades this week. In fact, just yesterday sharpening my mower blades. And the girls walked out to the uh, garage where I was sharpening them. And I was using, a, you know, one of those grinding wheels. And what is Lux? Where are you at? What was shooting off of that? Sparks. Do you know what the sparks were? Besides sparks? They were caused by something. Many of you know what I'm getting at. Kids, you may not know. Sparks are, were caused by the abrasiveness of the wheel grinding off pieces of the metal. So I'm to sharpen the blade, I'm grinding away pieces of the metal. In order for the blade to get sharp enough to do what I want it to do, made effective, pieces of the blade have to be taken off by force. If you are an axe in the hand of God, then you have to be sufficiently sharpened and made effective. Little imperfections in your life need to be ground off of you. And the biblical word for this is sanctification. That's what it is. Sanctification. If you're God's child, He is always sharpening you. At various times and in various ways, He's removing the things that are making you dull. Both around you and from your that come from within you. Most often, this happens against our will, though, doesn't it? He's, he's grinding those nicks and those chips away so that we're sharp, the sharpest that we can be in our ministry for Christ. Are you content with being a dull axe? Or do you desire to be an effective tool in the hands of the Master? We are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. The sharpening process is painful. Guys, it is uncomfortable, to say the least. But it's for your good, and it's for His glory. So what is obvious to the wise, like being as sharp as you can be, is not obvious to the foolish. The fool sees the grindings of the Lord. 
the sanctification of the Spirit in our lives and resists it. But if we're walking in wisdom, we won't resist it. We'll recognize it for what it is, the refining, the sharpening of the master on this dull blade, on this dull axe. Are you willing? Am I willing to go through the uncomfortable process of sharpening in order to be a more useful hand in the tool, a useful tool in the hand of the master? That's the question today. Are you willing to go through the hard time? And you know, oftentimes, when people are working with metal, they fire it. They put it under heat. And some of you feel like you are under heat, being refined. Don't resist that. Ask, Lord, what are you refining me into? We know Romans 8 tells us, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But his purpose in us is to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Verse 29 says. That's God's purpose in our sanctification. That's God's purpose in refining and sharpening you as the dull axe in the hand of the Father. Let's pray together. Sanctification. Lord, that's... This process that once we've been justified, we are headlong involved with until then finally we are glorified. And Lord, I know that there are seasons when we just dig our heels in in that. And we have this feeling of, well, Lord, you know, it's just not going to happen that way. I'm not going to let it. And we dig our heels in and we disobey you and we pay consequences for it. We don't walk in wisdom as we should. And yet this morning, Lord, for me and my brothers and sisters and friends this morning, God, help us to long for the sharpening that comes from you. Your word is what does this so often in our lives. It's like a two-edged sword. It cuts through. It cuts out the things that shouldn't be here in us. And so we pray that you would have your way in the work that you're doing in us through the Spirit. God, what's obvious to the wise is not always obvious to the foolish. And so we want to walk in wisdom so that we see what's obvious to the wise and then we walk in that way. Lord, as as we go from this place now, as we're dismissed in just a moment, God, my hope and prayer would be that the next time we are in a situation that we feel like a a blade being chipped and dulled, God, that we would, instead of resisting, instead of getting angry, um, that we would just rest and stand firm in a spirit of calmness and let you work. In Christ's name I pray, amen.